Okay, just want to start off with this question. And this is crowd participation, so I expect some answers coming out of this. What scares you? What frightens you? All right? What? Wow. Clowns. I just read an article about that yesterday, in fact. Okay, yeah, clowns, all right? Don't ever let my daughters be clowns. Okay, what else? Tornadoes. Whoa, whoa, that was quick. Come again. Tornadoes. Tornadoes. Bugs. Bugs. Okay, that's it. Flying. Flying. Oh, I thought the bugs flies. No, flying. Okay, flying. Heights. Falling from heights. That's That's one, too. Hey, listen, for some of you tall folks... A six-foot ladder, falling off a six-foot ladder, not such a big deal for me. It's a huge deal, all right? Lot further drop, okay? Someone else. Loss of family. Come again? Loss of family. Loss of family, all right. Yes? Oh, being stuck? Yeah, being stuck, all right. All right, well, let me throw out one, too, all right? I'm, real, I'm really surprised. I expected someone to bring this one up, but I'll throw one out. Since I'm the guy that's speaking, you know, and I'm going in a certain direction, all those answers are good. Is anyone afraid of the dark? No one's afraid. Now, I'm not talking about nighttime. I'm talking about dark. Okay, I'm talking about cavern dark. <laughs> That you cannot see the, the hand in front of your face, the oppressive darkness. I took, when I was a, a youth minister, I took 35 middle school kids, which is frightening enough in itself, for a weekend trip to spend the night and spelunk in Cumberland Caverns in Tennessee. Now, and, and this is, this, have you ever gone to a cavern? Are you with Carlsbad? Okay, okay. What do they do? They... they they take it to the main big room, and then some joker says, Okay, everybody, we're going to turn the lights out and see what happens, you know. And they turn the lights out, and it is Stygian darkness, right? I mean, and it's all fun and games for the first one second, and then you begin to feel the scream welling up in your upper abdomen, and it begins to get into your stomach, and up through your chest, and finally, right when it gets at the base of your esophagus, suddenly they turn the lights on, you know? <laughs> Wasn't that cute? Yeah, I get your throat close to my fingers. Yeah, well, you go into Cumberland Caverns, and they have this gigantic cave where everyone beds down for the night. You bring your sleeping bags and all that, and, of course, flashlights, too. You want to have that beside you, right? And then they turn the lights out. I got news for you. One of two things are going to happen. You are either going to have the best night's sleep you've ever had in your life, or you're not going to sleep at all. All right? That's just kind of the way it works. Darkness. Why is darkness so frightening in that regard? Well, you can't tell the difference between friend or foe, can you? You don't know where danger is or isn't, either from inanimate or animate objects. You lose your sense of direction instantly in darkness. One of the biggest fears of spelunkers is they have only one light and it breaks. Then immediately, what is your reaction? On your hands and knees and start crawling, hoping you're going in the right direction and not going for the heart of darkness. Darkness can be incredibly fearful. But then, all it takes is a little light. Boom, everything's better, right? Just a little bit of light. Well, maybe. Maybe not. 
Because even when you have a little bit of light, there's still darkness surrounding. And it distorts. And you sometimes think you see what you do not see. And you think you don't see what you actually do see. The darkness creeping in can cause problems in and of itself to distort even light. Now, I'm going to tell a story on my wife. And I didn't ask her for permission, so she's going to shoot me. Yeah. But, but, okay, my wife, when she was a child, was um, she slept in the same room with her younger sister, Vicky. They slept in the same bed, you know. That's, when you have large families, that's what happens, all right? So here they are in the same bed, middle of the night. Vicky shakes her awake. Terry, someone is coming in through the window. She looks, sure enough, there is a figure coming in through the window. Terry does the, I mean, survival instinct kicks in. She does the smartest thing anybody would ever do at that moment. Jump up and run out, thinking that Vicky is right behind her. She gets several feet outside of the room, turns around, and Vicky is nowhere to be seen. And then she does the dumbest thing. She goes back. It's like every, every, every horror movie, right? Where you're going, don't go back, you dummy. You know, she goes back to find Vicky sound asleep still in the bed. And the figure is still crawling in through the window. That figure sure has taken a long time to get in through that window until she further investigates and it is a chair that has clothing draped over it that in a moment's notice looked like someone coming in. I think that's what we have here in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. Oh, let me read that again. The next day the great crowd had come to feast and heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, save now. That's what that means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. The scene is set. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now once you get this picture, this is a kingly procession. It is understood to be a kingly procession. John, he talks about it very differently than the other writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You almost get the impression that Jesus is coming in with the crowd of people from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John says, no, the crowd see Jesus coming and they come out to him. Now, this is what we call a parousia. This is what we call the coming of a king into a town. The biggest insult you could ever give a king is to allow him to enter into a village or into a town without the crowd coming out to greet him. If you're Caesar and you're coming into a colony and the city leaders do not come out to meet you in the middle of the field before you get there, well, that's a good way to have a new city or a new city leaders. You know, no, you got a guy on the watch. He's watching for Caesar to come. He knows they're coming. He sees his retinue in the distance. He calls everyone together. Everyone marches out with the city leaders in charge in front and they have a ticker tape parade coming back in to the city. That's the way kings were. Everything about this scene is saying, King is coming. This is the one. And then there's a reference to Zechariah chapter 9. 
And I, I, actually, I'm going to disagree with you on this one, Joey. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, but the people expected, you know, I've seen commentators say the people expected to see Jesus coming in riding on a horse, that that's what kings do when they're conquering. Actually, this is Zechariah chapter 9, and the picture is, this is the king, yes, who has won a victory, but it's all within the context of battle. In this chapter, they don't have verses in chapters in in the Hebrew Old Testament. Back in the first century, what they did was they memorized the entire section. And so when they see chapter 8 and chapter 9, they see this little reference here, they don't go, oh, let's take a look at Zechariah 9. No, they say, let's think about the whole context. And so they picture this whole context. And in that context, you see all kinds of things, including Gaza being burned up, Ashkelon living in fear, no, Gaza writhing in agony. And the king is going to ride on a donkey, not a war horse, because chariots will be taken away from Ephraim, and war horses will be driven out of Judea, because they never trusted in chariots. Well, they never were supposed to trust in chariots and horses. They were supposed to trust in the power of God. So this entire passage about the king coming in on the donkey is the idea that he is going to set everything right. Now, the, the disciples don't even get the reference. They don't see the reference at all. It's not until later. They're kind of dumb as posts. But the crowd evidently sees it, and this is what they're expecting. God himself, and God is going to break even break the bow. Why? Because Judah, in Zechariah 9, is going to be turned into the bow. And Ephraim, or Israel, is going to be turned into an arrow. And God is going to use the bow of Judah and the arrow of Ephraim to smite his enemies. And God is going to turn the sons of Zion into a sword to destroy all the enemies. And all the, all the nations are going to come in because they have no other choice but to come in because they've been defeated. And God will rule. And get this one. Oh, by the way, it does say prisoners will also be freed by the blood of my covenant. That, that's an interesting thing to say in this particular passage as it relates to the passion of Christ. Now, then it says this, I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Babylon? Persia? Mm -mm. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. And I will make you like a warrior's sword. You're going to defeat the Greeks. Hold on to that thought just for a few seconds. This is what the crowd is hoping for. They know this passage. And they're shouting, save right now. Hosanna. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now the last time we see that word, and this is really fascinating to me because the king, the idea of king in John only appears twice before this passage. And one of them is in connection with the crowd saying that Jesus is king. You remember what that one was? The feeding of 5,000. And the crowd is trying to make him king by force. John, I think, is making us remember that. You have two crowds, both of them seeing Jesus as the king. And interestingly enough, the word king appears very few times in John. John 1, where Philip... Hang on to that. Philip introduces Nathaniel to Jesus. 
And he says to Nathaniel, come and see. And then Nathaniel says, you are the king of Israel. And then, of course, the one in John chapter 6. And then we begin to see from John chapter 12, this passage, king beginning to take up steam. A little bit of a flicker of light. The darkness backs off. We see light, but the darkness plays tricks with our eyes. Now, what's interesting is what happens after this text, after Zechariah, uh, after John 12. Zechariah talks about the sons of Greece being attacked by the sons of Zion, and Philip comes, Philip comes with a request from Greeks. They want to see Jesus. Boy, Philip is being connected with this coming and seeing and, and then with this Greeks in Zechariah chapter 9. And then, wait a minute, these are the guys that the king is supposed to strike, the sons of Zion are supposed to strike. But something's going on here. They want to see Jesus. And then again, we begin to think back to Zechariah chapter 8. At the very end of it, beginning of 9, where all the nations come to see the king, to see God, to Jerusalem. And then it says, at the very end, very interesting little text, it says, And then there will be ten foreigners, and if they see a Jew, they will grab him by the hem of the garment, and they'll say, We want to go with you. Show us. All of this is connected with Zechariah 9 and 8. All of it is. John's making a point here. It seems that the nations here now are beginning to recognize a little that there's a king here. That maybe God is the one. Perhaps the nations become to recognize the king before his own people. Back to John 1. He came to his own and his own did not recognize him. And then what does Jesus say? He talks about being glorified. talks about dying. And while the crowd says, King Jesus, save us. Jesus says, should I save myself? No. God, glorify your name. And then he says, now you're going to have a little light with you. So put your faith in the light because the light's going to be taken away. And then he hides himself. The light hides itself. And the writer starts speaking about another Old Testament passage about how the eyes are blinded to where they cannot see because they refuse to see. Flicker of light. People are blinded to it. People miss it. The darkness is still surrounding it. The darkness is making you see things differently. It obscures the light. The disciples, as we say, are dumb as posts. The crowd gets the references, but they're still looking at them through the wrong lenses. The Greeks want to see. Maybe they're the only ones getting a little clarity, but it's all too obscure still. Now, where are you going with this, Daryl? This is really kind of weird. You're all over the board here, aren't you? Is it just possible... That in this little scene, Jesus coming in from Jerusalem confronts a problem everyone was facing in the first century and the problem people have been facing ever since. You can sing praises to Jesus. You can raise your hands, stomp your feet, and shout Hosanna. Save now. You can proclaim Jesus as the King of all, give up everything to follow Him, and completely miss His point. Kingdom and following the king. Walking into the light 
is not about embracing structures of power to accomplish God's kingdom, which is what the crowds wanted, what the disciples wanted, what everyone was about. Let's embrace a structure of power to force the kingdom to come. And it wasn't just the followers of Jesus. The chapter before, you have the priests. The priests who are really upset because Lazarus has been raised from the dead. For the priests, it was about a combination of power, a combination of empire. Collude with the powers that be, ride on the coattails for your own power. The Pharisees were upset too in this text. The Pharisees, it was about creating a power base out of religion. That way I can control the people by becoming the expert, looking down my nose at the ignorant crowds, control the people with the fear of God. Power. For the zealots, or the Sicarii, those who would take on Rome, the revolutionaries, it's about using the same violent tools of empire to overthrow empire, affect change through the power of power, make Israel great again. Kick Rome in the teeth. And whether you're evangelical, progressive, liberal, conservative, religious, irreligious, in America, we've still missed the point. The darkness still distorts the light. It isn't about power games. The king operates on a different set of rules. Don't think I'm talking about some sort of privatized piety or pacifism either. Because the one who says, in the Sermon on the Mount, if I can jump out of John now and jump over to the synoptics, I hope that's okay. The guy that says in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him your left also. He's not talking about pacifism. He's not talking about being a doormat and letting someone roll over you. The picture is, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, there's either one or two possibilities. I either strike you with my left hand, open face, which is not likely, or I backhand you on the right cheek. And remember, the people that are being talked about in that Sermon on the Mount are the agents of empire, Roman soldiers. If I compel you to go a mile, that's a Roman soldier. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, the idea is that the Roman soldier, the agent of empire, backhands you, knocks you to the ground, and what's your response? Let him roll over you? No, your response is you get yourself up, you dust yourself off, you look that agent of the empire in the eye, and then you intentionally offer him your other cheek. That's not pacifism. That's confrontation of power. But confrontation of power with nonviolence. Con- confrontation of power with love. With a totally different approach altogether. It's defying the use of power itself. So, what's that look like for you and me? You want me to be just straight and honest with you? I feel like Tevye on the fiddler on the roof. You want to know where this tradition comes from? I'll tell you where it comes from. I don't know. <laughs> what I do with this one, I'm not really certain. Okay, just to be bluntly honest with you, I, I have some ideas. And yes, I am going to suggest them. Because I am standing up here, right? 
Maybe you have better ones, and I'm very serious about that. I would love to sit down and coffee. Anytime you have coffee, I'm going to sit down with you. And maybe you can give me better ideas, and I might like them even better. But for until now, this is what I've come up with. I think it means that rather than trying to bully people, rather trying to amass power, that we find a way to stand up to injustice by serving. Prophetically call out the wrong when we see it like Jesus did. But if you do anything like Jesus did, then you have to buy into the whole process. When everyone expects you to pick up a stick or a club, you pick up a towel and a basin and wash feet. Which, interestingly enough, is the next incident in this chapter, or in this uh, section. You heal someone who is sick. You listen to someone who needs a friend. When someone strikes an innocent, you place yourself between them and take the blow on yourself. It's not sexy. And to date myself, it's not Chuck Norris or Jean-Claude Van Damme or Van Johnson, whichever it is. It doesn't seem like much. It appears to be weakness. But I think it's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. The irony, and it is irony, of John 12 through 19 is Jesus is called king more often in those seven chapters than he's called in the first eleven chapters of the Gospel of John. Only reference to be king twice. But after John 12, or in John 12, on through 19, it snowballs. It's an avalanche where Jesus is called king over and over again. And the king is exalted, glorified, and identified as king by being nailed on a cross. That's where it happens. And that's how it takes place. Light defeats darkness on a cross without the use of violence and power. The powers and principalities are exposed and defeated on the cross. Now I know we're going toward resurrection, and that's important. They've got to have that. You can't. It's useless without resurrection. But even so, even Paul himself says that it's on the cross that the principalities and the powers, those are critters and also governments, are exposed for what they are, and they fail. They fail. The darkness is overcome by light. In the middle of darkness. We're really scared of the dark, aren't we? Especially in a cavern. But I think of another Old Testament story. Story of a prophet that loves power. Oh, this guy loved power. In fact, he called on God and got the greatest demonstration of power. Perhaps one of the greatest demonstrations in the Old Testament. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes his sacrifice. And then what does he do? I don't think God does this one. I think he does this one on his own. He gets this whipped to frenzy crowd to grab hold of 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of of, um, Asherah. At a moment there. That's, That's 850 prophets, by the way. And slaughters them. Power. 
And then what happens? Not what he thought. Queen Jezebel says, May the Lord deal all the more severely with me if your life is not like the life of one of those prophets by this time tomorrow. And he runs like a scared rabbit. Now, in all fairness, she was one mean lady. And he finds himself hiding in a cave in Mount Horeb. Now, to be fair, he was told to go there, that God was going to meet him there. And he's in that cavern, in the dark, in the deep dark. And suddenly, a violent, tornadic wind sweeps across the mountain. Now, God has said, I'm going to appear for you. This gigantic, tornadic wind sweeps across the mountain, but there's what the Bible says. He was not in the tornado. God was not in the wind. Then, an earthquake shakes the mountain to its core, but God was not in the earthquake. And then, a fireball consumes the mountain, but God was not in the fire. And suddenly the sound of a gentle wind, not a small, still voice, okay, the text says nothing about that, but a a gentle wind starts blowing. And Elijah wraps his cloak around him, steps out of the dark cavern into the light. Okay, I'm imagining it's like the text doesn't say that. But he steps out, and the voice says, What are you doing here, Elijah? And if we can be forgiven, perhaps we're missing the point. That's okay. But I think the point is this. God is saying, I don't operate the way you think I should. I'm not in the wind. I'm not in the fire. I'm not in the earthquake. You're going to have to trust me. You expect me to use violence and coercion to accomplish my will. It's not the way I do it. It's time you took notice, Elijah. It's time you took notice, apostles. It's time you took notice, Israel. And isn't it time that we notice too?